Thank you, choir. Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Marty. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a uh, true privilege to be up here to uh, open the word of the Lord with you. And with that, I encourage you or ask you, actually, to take your Bible out and open it up to the book of Jonah. I ask that every person have the Bible open in front of them. This is a story that we will recast today and be good to have it open. If, you're, if you don't have a Bible, you can pull open your pew Bible, and it's on page 774. 774. Well, as I said, we're starting just a short two-week series on the book of Jonah. And my question as we start out this morning is, what do you know about the book of Jonah? Now, if you've had kids or have kids, you know the book of Jonah, don't you? I mean, I have a stack of children's story Bibles at home, the ones that have a number of the stories throughout the Bible. All of them, every single one of them has the story of Jonah in it. None of them have the story of Ezekiel cooking his meals over cow's dung. None of them have cute little images of Zephaniah's prophecy of judgment to the Cherethites. All of them have Jonah. And when I look at that stack of story Bibles at home, I came up with an idea of what you might have an idea of what Jonah is about just by looking at the pictures through these story Bibles. So here's what I learned about Jonah from looking through those Bibles. Chapter 1, Jonah is on the ship on the sea in the midst of a great storm. Chapter 2, Jonah goes into the belly of the great fish. Look how cute that fish is. <laughs> Chapter 3, Jonah is a preacher to the Ninevites. In chapter 4, Jonah sits under the great plant that shades him. And just to add in a fifth and perhaps the greatest familiarity with Jonah, it has to be the 2002 box office smash, Jonah and Veggie Tales. I mean, Jonah does a great job teaching kids and us that God can and does do amazing, miraculous things, like rescuing poor Jonah from the belly of the fish. But I'm up here this morning to tell you there is much, much more to Jonah than those five cartoonish glances give us. And perhaps maybe we've missed some of the depth of Jonah because we have those images in our head. See, the message of Jonah is far more challenging and terribly convicting when we read the book of Jonah without those images. So instead, this morning, let's use some word descriptions to help guide our reading and thinking of Jonah. Instead of five images, let's use five words that I hope and pray will be helpful as we read through the book this morning. So we're going to read through the first two chapters in Jonah, and we have five words that I hope will guide our thinking, and those words are irony, fear, death, salvation, and sovereignty. So let those pop in your head as we read these chapters. And may I encourage you, this is an extended time of reading God's word, so you do have to do well and be focused. Pay attention. This is the word of the Lord, and we're going to read those two chapters now. Would you join me? Follow along. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. 
from the presence of the Lord, he sat down to Joppa and found the ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing the presence of the Lord because he had told them. They then said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word this morning for us. We thank and praise you that you are present with us in your Holy Spirit 
and that we together are your people and that you are our God and we can call upon you to help us, to change us, to conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And may you do that this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth be faithful and may the meditations of all our hearts and minds be helpful, Lord. Bless our time now. Amen. Well, our first word for this morning to guide our thinking is that word, irony. Irony is right there at the beginning of Jonah. Irony is at the very end of Jonah. And irony is all throughout the book of Jonah. It's dripping. And at its simplest, irony is, and I quote a definition here, a state of affairs or events that seem deliberately contrary to what one expects and is often amusing as a result. Look there at verse 1. This verse may be very familiar to you who know your Old Testament. That's because this is how prophetic books, and this is a prophetic book, this is how these kinds of books often open up. Turn just one or two pages to your right to the book of Micah and see, for example, Micah 1.1, the word of the Lord that came to Micah Morasheth. See? Very familiar. This is quite a common way for a book like this to open up. A word comes from God to the prophet, and then the prophet goes and speaks all kinds of words to a certain city, a town, or a group of people about what God has to say. Well, Jonah 1.1 starts in the same way of these prophetic books, books like Amos and Micah that surround Jonah. But from then on, it looks quite different than really any other book in the Old Testament. Now, just to head off one question here as we start into Jonah... We know that Jonah is a prophet, even though it doesn't say so here in verse 1, because that wording, the word of the Lord that came to Jonah, son of Amittai, well, that's an introduction fit only for a prophet. But you can also go to, at some point, 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, and see that Jonah indeed is called a prophet and a servant of God. Jonah served in the northern kingdom of Israel at the beginning of the 8th century B.C., but like I said, this book of Jonah is unlike any other prophetic book. God's word comes to Jonah in verse 1, and then you would expect Jonah to say all kinds of prophecies and oracles and to the city of Nineveh that he's called to go to. Why they are so evil and why they are storing judgment upon from God. But instead of that happening, we get straight into a story about Jonah himself. If you move on to verse 3, the irony actually ratchets up a bit more. See, when a prophet gets a, a word from the Lord and a command from the Lord, all the other prophets in the Old Testament hear that command to go and speak. And what do the prophets do? They go and speak. What does Jonah do? He doesn't go to Nineveh. He goes, or he tries to go, to Tarshish, which is nowhere near Nineveh. My friend Tony, who lives in Sydney, Australia, is coming to Ohio this week. And when Tony comes to Ohio, he gets on a plane in Sydney, and the plane takes off and it goes east over the Pacific Ocean on into Dallas, and then he comes into Ohio. But over the years, Tony's done this trip, and he's done it differently sometimes for various reasons. And sometimes he gets in a plane and it goes west over to Dubai or up to Singapore or London, and then he comes to Ohio. A different way to get to the same place. That's not what Jonah was doing here. In those days, you can't get to Nineveh via Tarshish. It'd be impossible. And it's 
very clear in our text here this morning what Jonah actually was doing. You see that there two times in verse 3. What was Jonah doing? He was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now, we don't know exactly where Tarshish was. Most estimates put it in present-day Spain. But we do know that Jonah's fleeing there had no missionary intent. Now, we'll come back next week in chapters 3 and 4 to find out exactly why Jonah fled from the calling to Nineveh. But just from these first three verses, we see that Jonah is unlike any other prophet, and the book of Jonah is unlike any other book in the Old Testament. So far, Jonah sets himself up or is set up as a highly ironic prophet. But there's one little problem here, as we talked about the description of irony earlier when I read the description. It's said that irony is a literary device often used to lead to amusement. Well, that's not where God is going with this story. Yes, it is almost laughable at the ironies we've seen here in the first few verses and what we will see beyond. But these ironies are meant to serve, in one sense, the opposite purpose of amusement. These ironies are meant to showcase what chapter 1 in Jonah is all about, and that is our second word, fear. Now, if you were to look closely at chapter 1, you would see that verses 4 through 8 and verses 11 through 16 are mirror images of one another, describing similar events in very similar ways. And that leaves verses 9 and 10 at the very center of what our author wants to see. For any geek out there, this is a literary device called a concentric structure. But what really matters is what the writer wants us to see. The irony of Jonah's statement there. Look at verse 9. This is the center statement of chapter 1. And this is what our, our author wants us to see. See, we have a prophet from God and we finally hear him speak. Jonah finally speaks up. And it is one of the most theologically sound statements of truth one could profess. But it doesn't take a literary genius to see how this is so very different than any other prophet speaking these bold truths about God. Jonah is a prophet called by God who wants nothing to do with God or his calling. In fact, he tries to get as far as possible from where God wants him to be and what God wants him to do. He had no fear of God at all. And so you'll see there, God hurled a great storm as a warning to Jonah for fleeing, trying to flee his presence and his call. Now in verse 5 there, you see that the ferocity of the storm was so great that these professional sailors traded their short-term safety for their long-term ability to feed and clothe themselves. They dumped their precious money-making cargo overboard. The storm was that bad. And still... Jonah refused to repent. He refused to change and go back towards his mission. He refused to fear the Lord. Instead, he goes to sleep. I think that's kind of funny there. And I really don't like him for it. My brother can go to sleep at any time, any place, during anything that's going on. I can barely sleep through the night when the wind blows. Jonah can sleep with this ferocious, tempestuous storm. Well, look at verses, 10, or verses 11 and 12. Now, Jonah finally, maybe he comes to his senses. It would be easy to think in verses 11 and 12 that Jonah is finally being a decent guy 
and says, hey, I'm, I'm the reason this is going to happen. This ship's going to break apart. Throw me over and you'll be rescued. But think about it for a minute. Wouldn't it have been much easier for Jonah and much better for Jonah if he simply repented? To say to God, you were right and I was wrong, than to have the sailors toss him over the side? Jonah refuses to repent. He refuses to heed the Lord's clear warning. And instead, he chooses suicide. He would rather die than come to fear the Lord. And yet, back in verse 9, when he's asked to give his biography, Jonah leaps into that great God speak that we so easily can do. What does Jonah say? I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. It's almost laughable, isn't it? But it's really sad. And to reinforce the irony here, and to reinforce that fear is the main thing our author wants to see, the author juxtaposes Jonah with the other characters of chapter 1, the sailors. Even these poor, pathetic, pagan, polytheistic sailors, even they saw what was going on here. Look at how the author uses these words to show that fear grows in the right direction for them. Look at verse 5. They were afraid and called out to their own gods. Verse 10, they became exceedingly afraid because of the presence of the Lord through Jonah. And then in verse 16, that great statement, they feared the Lord Yahweh exceedingly. So much so that sailors who superstitiously cast lots in verse 7, now in verse 16, are making vows and sacrifices to the Lord Yahweh the one and only God of heaven and earth. Jonah said he feared the Lord with his words, but he showed no fear of the Lord with his actions. The sailors feared and called on other gods at the beginning of the chapter, but by the end of the chapter, they feared God in both word and deed. And that's the main point of chapter 1. Fear the Lord. It would be worth just stopping here for a moment in our retelling of the story, but it won't take long for us to consider this application for us. How many of us live really ironic lives in front of the world? You're not called a prophet, but you, all, you call yourself a Christian. And how many times does the world look on and say, he says he's a Christian, but look at what he's doing. Look at what he's thinking. Look at what he's spending money on. Look at what he did this weekend. Look at how he loses his temper. Look, irony. Scripture does this so well, right? We look on at Jonah and say, what a joke. What a fool. But then Scripture turns into a mirror to our own hearts and minds and our souls. And we see ourselves. How many times do we say one thing, I fear the Lord, and do another? I'm sure there are many times this week that... That habitual sin, that passing thought, that lack of action needed, all needed an increase in the fear of the Lord, just like those pagan sailors. Here in Jonah 1, God reminds us that he is a God to be feared. But let's get back to our story. We have this prophet from God fleeing the presence of the Lord. We have these pagan sailors now worshiping the one and true God. Where does that leave Jonah? Well, Jonah is spiraling downward away from the Lord. 
to the point of death, our third word here. See, ever since the beginning of the book of Jonah, Jonah has been fleeing the presence of the Lord, as it said many times. But it's actually more than that, and our author is cleverly weaving in certain words to cue us that it's not just away from the Lord, but he's going down away from the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 3, verse 5, and chapter 2, verse 6, all have these little cues that Jonah went down. See, Jonah's attempt at fleeing the presence of the Lord is actually a descent downward to death itself. And we saw that in verse 12 of chapter 1. Rather than repenting, Jonah chooses suicide. And at the end of chapter 1, it looks like that finally will happen. Jonah's running away from God in chapter 1 is pictured as a constant going down away from the Lord, the rebellious prophet's journey further from his presence. And so at the end of chapter 1, that great fish comes up and swallows him, gulped up for certain death. And though the fish ultimately provides the shelter for God's rescue, that's not how Jonah sees it. That cute fish that we saw on the screen is actually representing death. So we move from chapter 1, which is a story, and we're meant to look at the details, into chapter 2 now, which is a poem. It's a prayer that we're meant to see as a whole, the main point. And what's the main point of this prayer? Jonah is as good as dead without hope. You'll see that word, Jonah's first utterance from the belly of the fish in chapter 2, verse 2, that word sheol. In the minds of the ancient world, you can go no further down in a way than Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. Now, Sheol isn't hell. It's just the name of the place where dead people go to await their final punishment. And that's where Jonah is for three days and three nights. See, in the time of Jonah, the ocean wasn't a place where many people desired to flock to every year. It wasn't a place for vacationers. To them, to the ancients, the ocean represented mythical chaos, unknown death itself. So you notice the language there in chapter 2, verses 2 through 6. Jonah is in distress. He's crying out. He's in the deep, caved in by water at all sides. His life is being taken. The deep unknown is surrounding him from all around. Jonah is as good as dead. Where elsewhere in the Bible, like in Psalm 88, these same images seen in Jonah 2 are used to represent death. So three days and three nights in the belly of the fish of the sea is nothing other than being in the grips of death. And this is why the prayer of Jonah has so much force. He pleads with God in the midst of death. And at this place, Jonah's lowest point he finally, he finally repents and calls out to God for salvation. Our fourth word. Look there at chapter 2, verse 6, at the second part there. This is really the turning point of the whole story of Jonah 1 and 2. As Jonah kept going away from the Lord, as he brought, was brought as low as he possibly could go, then he was brought up by the Lord. As his life was fainting away, God's power and mercy finally overwhelmed him so that he would, as it says in verse 7, remember and pray to the Lord. And then there at the end of verse 9, Jonah utters yet another theological and doxological gem. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But this time, 
Jonah seems to mean it. Because then he is rescued. Now this line, salvation belongs to the Lord, is such a common line. It doesn't really shake us this morning. It doesn't send chills up our spine. But it did Jonah. Because he knew that God knew him even in the depths of Sheol. Even in the grips of death. No one else could possibly help him. No one else could possibly rescue him except Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty. Now, some people have charged Jonah here in chapter 2 with stealing ideas from the Psalter. And I don't think that Jonah was stealing anything, but I do think he had the same ideas as, say, David. David in Psalm 139 gives us that great psalm, that great poem about how God knows us before we get up in the morning. How comforting it is to know that God knows us when we get up and when we sit down. What a pleasure it is to know that God knows us. He knows the words that come even before they're on our tongue. And how comforting it is to know that God knows us in the depths of Sheol, the depths of the dead. And it's from there that Jonah finally recognizes that God alone is the author and giver of salvation. That God is to be feared and praised simultaneously. Because he is a sovereign God over all things and all people, even in Sheol. Our fifth word, sovereign. You have that great statement in chapter 2, verse 9. And with that statement, it reminds us of the true central character of the story of Jonah. What you wouldn't pick up if you read through the story Bibles. Jonah and the sailors indeed are prominent in this story. But God is the one whom the whole story is about, isn't he? Did you notice the sovereign Lord's role in all that happened in chapter 1 and 2? Chapter 1, verse 4. The Lord hurled the great storm. Chapter 1, verse 17. The Lord appointed the great fish to swallow Jonah. Chapter 2, verse 3. The Lord cast Jonah into the deep away from him. Chapter 2, verse 6. It was the Lord who brought up Jonah from the dead. Chapter 2, verse 9, it was the Lord to whom salvation comes. In chapter 2, verse 10, it is the Lord who spoke for the fish to rescue Jonah. Jonah thought he could get away from the presence of the Lord. And what Jonah found out, you can't run from God. And he now sees that is a wonderful truth, a life-saving truth. Over the years, I've asked some people to come to church who rarely or never come, and they've given me that feigned, humble response. Oh, I couldn't come. The walls of church would cave in if I stepped in through the doorway. What I think they mean by that is that they know they're not living God's way. They know they're in rebellion against God. But if they keep away from church, God won't know. If they keep away from church, God will keep away from them. And I think that's what Jonah thought in chapter 1, verse 3, when he fled from the presence of the Lord. But now he knows differently. God is sovereign over all time, over all people, everywhere. And now Jonah is so very thankful for that. He rejoices in the Lord God Almighty for hounding him wherever he went. Now, speaking of Jonah chapter 1, what about Jonah's mission? Jonah can care less about the Ninevites and their salvation, so he ran away. 
Was God's plan thwarted? Well, let's consider the results so far, knowing that we still have chapters 3 and 4 next week to come. We have a ragtag bunch of sailors who are now fearing and worshiping Yahweh, the one and only God. Jonah didn't care at all about Nineveh, but Jonah's presence on the boat and his one-line sermon there in verse 9 converted a bunch of pagans. And our ruthless pagan sailors were appointed by God to care for Jonah, to work hard at rowing, not wanting him to throw, throw him overboard, leading to their own rescue, leading to Jonah's rescue, and leading ultimately to the salvation of 120,000 people in a faraway town called Nineveh. More on that next week. Why did this all happen? How did this all happen? God used a wayward prophet, a hypocritical sermon, and a big fish to accomplish his plans. The Lord is sovereign. He is in control. Nothing can surprise him. Nothing can thwart his plans. Nothing takes him. And it took Jonah to visit the depths of death itself to see that. So where does this leave Jonah? Well, we leave our man in chapter 2, verse 10, vomited up on dry land, rescued. Now, I couldn't find any images of that in our children's Bibles. And it does leave us with a cliffhanger, and I hope you will come back next week to find out where this leaves Jonah. What does Jonah do with his salvation? Perhaps a question we could ask ourselves every morning. What will we do with our salvation? Friends, Jonah is a fantastical story, one we can take away and make some great kid stories and VBS crafts, but it is much more than that. It showcases a sovereign God who is in control of all things, and it showcases a God who is powerful and yet merciful. What do we take away from Jonah chapter 1 and 2? I've already said it. To fear and praise God simultaneously. Jonah started with promise, he descended to the depths of death itself, and was brought back up to speak those wonderful words, salvation belongs to the Lord. And he came to fear the Lord. See, a God who is powerful enough to be in charge over everything, even the depths of Sheol, is a God who is big enough and powerful enough to be feared. wonderful message of the gospel is that power and God's mercy comes together in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. And we see that throughout all the gospels. A man with great power, but a man with great compassion. God's sovereignty and God's salvation together come at the foot of the cross. I want to leave you with a quote from one of my favorite books, Knowing God. I think Jim Packer puts these things together so well to leave us with the high note that Jonah wants us to leave us in chapter 2. Packer writes, What matters supremely, therefore, is not, in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands, says Isaiah. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me. 
and continues to do so. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eye is off of me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that should energize us, and knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to me is utterly realistic, based on every point of prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can disillusion him about me in the way I'm so often disillusioned about myself. Nothing can quench God's determination to love and bless me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful and humbled to know that it all comes from you. Lord, we rejoice this morning, even as we revere you and fear you, knowing that you are the big God of the universe who created all and sustains all and gives all. Every drop of rain comes down, comes at your command. And nothing happens without your command. And yet, Lord, you care so much for us. You know us when we wake up and when we sit down. You know us in the depths of our worst moments of life. And you love us, Lord, because of your Son, Jesus Christ. I ask you, Lord, that you will convict us to revere, honor, and fear your name so that we will not live ironic lives, that we will live lives worthy of the calling we have as sons and daughters of you. And I ask you, Lord, that our days will spend praising your name for the salvation that comes only from you and your Son, Jesus. Lord, we need help on both fronts. Change us, help us. Guard us, protect us, enthuse us, Lord. All for your name's sake. Amen.